You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. All right, so this week is uh, part four in a series that we've been doing on the question, are humans animals? And we've been exploring a lot of questions related to uh, the image of God and science. And that's led us to a lot of conversations about evolution. And um, so I wanted to kind of peer into the future a little bit as to where this is all heading in our culture, a little bit of future talk. And so uh, if you have someone in your oikos who's in the emerging generation, a child, a grandchild, this is what's coming. This is the cultural shifts that are happening as we speak. And so I want you to understand and be aware of where we're going. So if you missed last week, you might want to catch that because there was a lot of kind of groundwork that we laid last week. But we're going to talk about a concept called transhumanism, and we'll define all of that shortly. Uh, I want to give a quick brief uh, review of the Christian world. We always like to center us on where we are and in our series, just kind of part of my style of teaching. And uh, this has been our key verse for the year of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we've been exploring these verses and the application of the classical Christian doctrine of the image of God this whole year. And... The main thing that we have been saying all along is that all humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth simply by them being human. There is a certain amount of worth that we have as human beings and that we've been talking in this particular series of conversations more recently that there is this unbridgeable gap between humans and animals, that humans alone are created in the image of God. And what is that? How does that work out in our morality? And I've been encouraging us that Christians need to display that dignity within the church and advocate for that dignity in the broader culture. And hopefully we've been helping you clarify how to do some of that to understand a distinctly Christian uh, worldview. So today we're going to be in Genesis. Genesis is the foundation for so many ideas that we have in our worldview The roads all seem to lead back there, it seems. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now these two kind of what I call supernatural trees that were there in the garden. This is a little odd, right? We don't, you know, a tree is is something that we understand. It's a physical thing. But these two trees had spiritual properties. They were almost like uh, portals to the spirit realm, okay? They had spiritual applications, spiritual implications. And Could we think about some other examples in our own um, culture of this type of a thing, where a thing in the physical realm is a portal to the spirit realm? 
If you've ever been a fifth grade girl, uh, you've probably gone to a slumber party where they used a Ouija board. So I don't know what it is about fifth grade girl slumber parties, but it seems like there are often Ouija boards. And uh, a Ouija board is a, you can go down to Toys R Us. Well, that's out of business now. Uh, you can go somewhere where they sell toys. <laughs> Barnes and Noble, yes. And a Ouija board is what in the physical realm? It's just a piece of wood, right? It's, it's, it's a game. It's sold in the game section. It's a physical piece of wood, right? But it, it, it acts as a spiritual portal to the spirit realm. So if you really want to get like messed up and infected with some evil spirits, start using a Ouija board. I don't recommend that if you have the Holy Spirit, which could be a separate conversation for us. But uh, this is an example in our own culture of something like this situation here, where we had physical trees that had supernatural properties, if you will. Okay. So these two particular, yes. The Bible, that's a great one, yes. The Bible is, the, is our supernatural portal. It has the words of life, and there are many testimonies. My friend, uh, Dr. Fuzrana, that we're going to hear more from this morning, uh, he came to Christ by reading the Sermon on the Mount. He grew up in a, in a family with a, a father who was a Muslim, and he grew, he grew up as an atheist. And when he was in graduate school, he thought, well, I'm going to at least investigate Christianity. So where should I start? He started with the book of Matthew. And he said, by the time he got to chapter five on the Sermon on the Mount, he realized he had become a Christian. So that was just through reading the scriptures that he got convicted that this is true. So wonderful example. Yes. So um, these trees do two things. One is a tree of life and one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they each had different instructions about them. Let's turn over to chapter 3. Turn the page. Uh, verse 21. This is after the fall. They've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though the Lord God told them not to eat of it. And guess what? It had spiritual consequences. And their eyes were opened and it, they fell out of fellowship with the Lord God. There became a separation between them. So in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So, uh, and then we can skip down to the end of verse 24. He, uh, the Lord puts cherubim at the, at the entrance of the garden of Eden, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So that now that because they, their eyes had been opened to good and evil, the Lord God did not want them partaking of the tree of life. And so he had to protect the tree of life by getting them out of the garden. And I've made the suggestion before in this class that I think that one of the reasons he did that was to limit the spread of evil. Can you imagine if an evil person had access to the tree of life? If you had the ability to live forever, if Adolf Hitler had the ability to live forever, imagine how much more evil could be propagated on the earth. 
I actually think that blocking the way to the tree of life was God's blessing. It was a way of limiting the power spread and impact of evil. And we think evil's bad now. It could have been much more, much more multiplied if evil people had access to the tree of life. Well, if they haven't yet been tainted by evil, it seems that because they were in the physical world, here's a speculation, is it seems like they would have needed a way to renew their bodies because their bodies would have potentially degraded over time. I think the, the part of the purpose of the tree of life was to keep their bodies going because, because we have a hint of that, that the reason they have to block the tree of life is that it has supernatural properties to help them live forever. And so there was something about that tree of life that was, that was there to impart to them a, per, a perpetual renewing of their body. That's, that's my understanding of, of this. So let's turn now to Genesis 6, a little further in the story of the line of Seth. The author's trying to get us to Abraham. That's really the author's point. And if those of you who are in my Genesis class know that, that that's, he's just giving us some groundwork to get us to Abraham and to the, the plan of salvation after the fall. So he doesn't explain a lot of details. So in Genesis 6, the Lord says, I will not contend with this man forever, for he's mortal. His life, his days will be 120 years. So here the Lord reduces the lifespans. And I think by doing so, he's reducing the power and impact of the spread of evil. And it's directly tied to evil in the following verses uh, where it's describing the Lord God saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth had become and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved and he made, that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures, for I am grieved that I have made them. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. Notice these words, wickedness, violence, only evil all the time. See, I don't think I'm getting this idea of limiting evil, pain, and suffering out of nowhere. I think it's in the context here of what the problem is. He's limiting the lifespans. And then the very next conversation is humans have become extremely evil and wicked and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So this is a major problem that even by chapter six, evil has spread. So definitely glad the tree of life was not accessed, right? Then we have in Revelation the end of scripture, we revisit many of these themes. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 says, and this is to the church in Ephesus, this is a letter to the church in Ephesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then we see again in Revelation chapter 22, 
I am the Alpha, the Omega, the, the, la, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life. They may go into the city. Outside are the dogs and those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, let him who hears say, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So here we have in the new creation, the picture of life. And I would like to say that I don't have time to go into all this, but that the end of revelation isn't returning us to Eden. It's not re rehashing Eden, rather it's taking us into the new creation to say how the new creation is even better than Eden, where there is no possibility of evil coming in. That gate has been closed and there is no more tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is only the tree of life where we live forever. And I think that What's from a Christian, I'm just trying to lay the major features of the Christian worldview when it, we think about things like our life and our death and the new creation, the eternal state. So, because these are going to all have bearing on the video that we're going to watch today on transhumanism. So, this is from uh, the Nicene Creed that we have revisited a few times in the class. That when we think about what we believe from a Christian worldview about the world to come, we believe in one God, one Lord Jesus Christ, who ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come again to judge with glory to judge the living and the dead. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life in the age to come. This is just a basic summary of what we look forward to. In our own church's doctrinal statement on our website, it says, we believe in two destinies, heaven and hell, that heaven is a place of eternal life with Christ and hell is a place of eternal death and separation from God. We also believe in the blessed hope, the personal premillennial return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I've also included the statement from our church's previous doctrinal statement. Our eternal destiny is forever sealed by our acceptance or rejection of Christ and his work on the cross in this lifetime, unbelievers will experience eternal separation from the presence of God in hell, a place of suffering and loss. Believers will experience eternity with God in heaven, a place of joyful worship and fellowship with the redeemed of all ages. We also believe in the premillennial coming of Jesus Christ to the earth and his saints to establish his kingdom on earth. Okay, so again... This just getting the groundwork of what we believe as Christians. When we look into our future, this is what we see. This is what grounds us. Okay, our culture is asking some very important questions about their future. How can we control our future through evolutionary progress? Last week, we talked about how evolution is the controlling paradigm of our culture, that we are moving in a progressive direction from a cultural standpoint. This is what we think. So the idea here is, okay, if God does not exist, 
all right, then how do I control my future destiny as a human being? Okay, so we've just laid the groundwork of the Christian worldview, right? Now we're switching into what our culture is saying. So here's how our culture is thinking. If, if God does not exist, how do I control my life? How do I control my body so that it can potentially live longer? How can I expand my lifespan? Now we saw from a Christian worldview, what did God say? I'm limiting your lifespan, right? I'm limiting your access to the tree of life. But the idea in our culture is this idea of body augmentation that we will give rise to humans that are more resilient, optimized, and continually monitored. This is, this is where we are going. And so the thorny issue of technology that I've said before in class is that most technology is morally neutral. A knife is a technology. It's a very crude technology, but in the hands of a of a surgeon who knows what he's doing, it can bring life, right? A knife in the hands of an evil person can bring death, right? So what's the difference? Is the problem in the technology? It's in the human heart, right? It's in our knowledge, it's in our wisdom, and our intellect, wickedness. It's something internal in us, right? It's not the technology's problem. I used the example of the stethoscope a few weeks ago. You remember that? That the stethoscope is, is, is not like a, a moral technology. There's nothing inherently moral about the stethoscope. You can use it if you're a doctor. You can listen to the heart. You can really hear if there's a valve problem there. Right? But before the stethoscope, what tools did the doctor have? Well, he could ask you some diagnostic questions. Do you get out of breath when you run uphill? Uh, what are you feeling? Do you feel hot? Do you feel your heart palpitating more quickly? But if there wasn't, a, the stethoscope allows him to kind of zoom in on the problem a little bit more. But sometimes technology often can have also a dehumanizing effect. We've seen with the proliferation of medical technology, the doctors need to talk to us less and less because they have a test for everything, yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, what am I even doing here? This is a five-minute appointment. They stand there and they just write little tickets so I can go get more tests and I just really want to talk to someone, right? I want to tell them my symptoms and that maybe I don't fit in the, maybe my symptoms aren't coming up on the test, Right? And so it's, but this is not the technology's problem, but technology can have, an, a, some, it can have a dehumanizing effect on us at times, can it? Mobile devices offer a wonderful technology. Like I remember when my husband and I was first married, he had a job at Domino's Pizza. And we lived right on the border between LA County and Orange County. So we had to have two Thomas Guides. Remember Thomas Guides? Yes. It's a big thick map like this, right? So, so he could... He could deliver his pizzas. So he gets the address. He looks it up on his Thomas guide. Boom, boom, boom. I know where I'm going. And he goes to deliver his pizzas. Well, now we have this thing, this, these apps. You know, I don't need to have this big, thick Thomas guide in my car. I just type this in on my mobile device, right? And it'll, this thing will even speak the directions to me. 
how lazy do I need to be, right? And I don't need to really even know how to read a map anymore because this thing will just tell me where to go and where to turn and hopefully it's all correct because if I get lost, then that's a whole other problem. But, or if the information's incorrect. But th these are very handy, right? But can you imagine like the, the, the dark side of this is like this is a porn delivery machine right in your pocket, right? It used to be if you, if you were a porn addict, you got to go to a seedy part of town and go into a, a bookstore that nobody wants to be seen going into, right? Now you can just use your credit card on this thing and I'm in Starbucks on a regular basis and there's guys in there watching porn using the free Wi-Fi. Is it the devices issue? This is a technology, but it's how we use it, right? So, and it has a certain dehumanizing effect. I mean, how often uh, do we uh, sit around like as a family in a restaurant and we're all on our mobile devices instead of talking to each other, right? There's a certain dehumanizing effect that technology can have if we're not really aware of it. We have to be like vigilant about it, about, about counteracting the dehumanizing effect of technology. And we don't often think about this. But body augmentation is part of what's coming and it's the application of various technologies to alter and change our bodies. Now, some of this couldn't be good. There is a rising technology in the realm of gene editing and CRISPR-Cas9 uh, technologies where you, we can actually edit the human genome. Now, the potential good here is that we could begin to eliminate some genetically caused diseases. And I think that our, part of our call as Christians is to eliminate suffering. And this could be a way of doing that. But... Can we imagine gene technology in the hands of evil people and what that could result in? That's kind of a scary world to think about. Advances in in vitro fertilization technology that allow us to select embryos, maybe based on their intelligence or their eye color or their gender. The more we progress into these technologies, we open new ethical doors, right? And so then this is where the condition of the human heart becomes very important as to how these technologies are being used and how are we going to keep them from dehumanizing us. So last time we talked about the worldview of atheistic evolution. And this is just a review slide of kind of contrasting the historic Christian worldview where humanity has intrinsic value and our moral behavior is rooted and grounded in the character of God and in God's laws and purposes and his destiny that he has declared over us, like we talked about in the verses earlier. But atheistic evolution is a position that says, no, there's no, there's no purpose, there's no transcendent purpose or direction to the universe. There's just matter in motion. I matter, you're matter, you're matter, and... We're just all matter bumping, bumping into each other. It doesn't matter. Yeah, and, and, you know, I have my own personal moral system. You have your moral system, and there's nothing that says your moral system is better or worse than mine because why should I listen to your matter? and Why should you listen to my matter? We're all just matter, right? So, but very few people in our world are consistent atheists. Very, very few.
We saw a couple last time. Most people in your oikos are going to be secular humanists. These are people that really don't believe in God, but they kind of like some of his moral codes. They kind of like a world with meaning. They kind of like to think about the world has purpose. But the purpose doesn't come from God, it just comes from themselves. So they conceive of a world that is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without a belief in God. This is what most people are secular humanists, just kind of living in a good world without God. We don't need God's laws. We don't need a God to tell us what to do. We define our own purpose based on the greater good of humanity or the greater good of myself. One of those or some combination of that. But I don't need God for that. But these people will often be very vociferous human rights advocates. But they don't involve God. They don't involve the idea of the image of God. But they, they think that humans ought to have rights, certain rights. But they don't connect it to God. It's very interesting. So most people are secular humanists. Okay, with all of this in place, now we're going to watch... Uh, my friend Dr. Fuzrana talk about transhumanism and the transhumanist vision for the future and where our culture is heading and his call for Christians to begin to understand these matters um, because this is coming. It's not going to do us any good to pretend that this is just scary and Christians need to opt out. We need to get a different vision for how to do that. So we're gonna watch this right now. Biochemist Fuzz Rana is Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe. Fuzz earned a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry at West Virginia State University and a PhD in Chemistry with an emphasis in Biochemistry at Ohio University. He pursued postdoctoral studies in the biophysics of cell membranes at the Universities of Virginia and Georgia. Though he initially embraced the evolutionary paradigm, Fuzz eventually drew the conclusion that only a creator's involvement could explain the elegance of biochemical systems. Please welcome Fuzz Rana. Well, good morning, everybody. You know, I don't know what Michael was talking about because Hugh and Kathy said I have 45 minutes. So I just have time to burn up here. <laughs> just kidding, of course. Um, have any of you known somebody who suffered from a stroke or maybe from a traumatic brain injury? You know, uh, those types of events in a person's life, of course, are, are horrifying, not only for the patient, but for friends and family members. And I remember when I was uh, in college, my father suffered the first of his two strokes. Thankfully, the first stroke was really mild and, and left very little impact on him. You wouldn't even know that he had suffered a stroke other than he was slightly weakened on his left side, but it was a frightening experience. But a number of years later, he suffered a second stroke and he wasn't so lucky. He was, it decimated him physically, but tragically, it, it impacted his mental capabilities. And this is really very sad, uh, particularly for me, because 
my father was the most brilliant person I've ever known. He was a nuclear physicist, a college professor. In fact, he was an intimidating person because of his intellectual power. And it was really very frustrating for him. And it was very sad for us to see my father uh, finish his life in that way. And maybe that's why I'm drawn to the story of Rosemary Johnson. Maybe some of you have heard of Rosemary's story. Rosemary Johnson was a promising classical musician. Uh, In 1988, she was 19 years old, and she had earned a seat in the Welsh National Opera Orchestra as a second violinist. And on the way to a performance, was involved in an automobile accident. And that left her in a coma for seven months. And then after coming out of the coma, she was unable to move and unable to speak. She was locked in, trapped in her own mind. And that's how Rosemary Johnson has lived her life since that tragic day. But things are changing for Rosemary Johnson. Thanks to work done by Eduardo Miranda, who's a neuroscientist uh, at Plymouth University in the United Kingdom. Uh, Edward Miranda is... uh, collaborating with a team of researchers from the Royal Hospital for Neurodisabilities in London, and they've launched something called the Brain-Computer Interface Project. Uh, Check that, the Brain-Computer Music Interface Project. And the idea behind this project is to use modified EEG caps to, to detect the electrical activity of the patient's from the patient's brain, and then to train the patient to use their brain electrical activity to control computer software that allows them to select notes and musical phrases so that they can compose music. In fact, if a musician is able to see a mirror of their screen, they can actually direct the performance of that musician. In fact, Eduardo Miranda has formed something that he's called the Paramusical Ensemble, which is a collaboration of four quadriplegic patients who were locked in, like Rosemary Johnson, in the Bergeson String Quartet. And they will travel around the United Kingdom performing at musical festivals, showing off this emerging technology. And as you can imagine, this is incredibly transformative for these types of patients. And the reason why Eduardo Miranda chose music as the means to communicate is because music not only allows the communication of ideas, it allows the communication of emotions and feelings, which is so very important for patients who are locked in. And I would like to show you a short clip of uh, Rosemary Johnson directing the performance of a musician who she played with in the Welsh National Opera Orchestra. The first voice you're going to hear on this clip is that of neuroscience Eduardo Miranda. So let's watch this clip. You know, it took 20 years. It would not have been achieved if I had not the chance to work with Rosie. The idea of playing with Rosie again after so many years was something I never imagined would be possible. (laughs) 
<laughs> I must have seen this uh, video 25 times and, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> I tear up every time. What a wonderful use of technology. And I'm more convinced than ever that people are made in God's image watching this video clip. Just seeing the way that Rosemary Johnson responded to being able to communicate through music. The image of God was just unleashed. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are incredible advances that are happening in computer brain interface technology. For example, a team of researchers at UC Berkeley a number of years ago developed mathematical algorithms that allow them to convert electrical activity in a patient's brain into words that can be displayed in software packages. And to do this, they piggybacked on a pre-surgical procedure that is done for epileptic patients before um, ep uh, surgery where they will go in and kill part of the brain that's actually responsible for the seizures, they have to very carefully map out brain function. So these researchers wired up these patients with 256 electrodes and then monitored the electrical activity as the patients engaged in conversation as they read uh, out loud and then read to themselves. And in fact, just recently, a team of researchers published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine where they used computer brain interface technology to allow an ALS patient who is locked in to communicate it with words through, again, software, computer software. Computer brain interface technology is uh, impacting uh, the lives of amputee patients as well. We're developing the ability to uh, produce rather sophisticated prosthetic limbs. And with computer brain interface technology, patients can learn to control the movement of these robotic limbs with their thoughts. In fact, they can even develop a sense of ownership of that limb. This is an incredible example of technology that is used for good. But yet, tragically, there is a dark side to this technology. And to appreciate that dark side, we need to consider something known as transhumanism. How many of you in here know what transhumanism is? A few people. I'm, I find that most people don't know what transhumanism is. This is a movement that began in the 1960s. It's a scientific and philosophical movement that was largely viewed as a fringe idea until about four or five years ago, where this idea is now rapidly moving into the mainstream in academia among scientists, technologists, and philosophers. And the idea behind transhumanism is that we are to develop and employ technology to enhance human beings beyond our biological capabilities. That through technology, we can enhance our physical abilities, our intellectual abilities, and our emotional uh, states that technology can be used to overcome our weaknesses as human beings, that technology can be used to transcend and supersede our biological limitations. But there's more than just human enhancement that's part of transhumanism. Transhumanism 
takes on a religious nature and character because transhumanists now view this idea that they ha we have as human beings through technology total control over our destiny as a human species and that through technology we can actually evolve humanity into an ensemble of post-human species that are a fusion of technology and biology. This is what James Hughes said in his book uh, Citizen Cyborg. In the 21st century, the convergence of artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and genetic engineering will allow human beings to achieve things previously imagined only in science fiction. Lifespans will extend well beyond a century. Our senses and cognition will be enhanced. We will gain control over our emotions and memory. We will merge with machines, and machines will become more like humans. These technologies will allow us to evolve into varieties of post-humans and usher us into a transhuman era and society. Human technologies, technologies that push the boundaries of humanism can radically improve our quality of life and we have a fundamental right to use them to control our bodies and our minds. This is what transhumanism is. But it's not just simply enhancing our, us uh, uh, human beings beyond our biological limits. It's not simply taking control of, of evolution and ushering in a post-human era. There's a desire through transhumanism to attain utopia, to extend life expectancy indefinitely and perhaps even attain immortality through uh, a post-human future. This is the grand vision of the singularity. By, espoused by Ray Kurzweil, the idea that there's going to be a merger between man and machine, if you will, and that through technology we're going to be able to upload our conscience, our minds, our essence, whatever you want to call it, into a computer framework, and in doing so, uh, not only supersede our biological limitations, but live forever. If you think this idea is science fiction, consider some other advances in computer brain interface technology. Scientists have discovered that with computer brain interfaces, they can actually uh, send uh, uh, continuous pulses into the brain of Parkinson's patients, and in doing so, actually alleviate the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. This is an exciting advance. And in fact, they discovered that that same procedure, if the electrical pulses are intermittent, can actually enhance the memory and cognitive abilities of Alzheimer's patients. Now, this is interesting because we're now one step away from using computer brain interface technology to enhance the cognitive abilities of people who are not suffering from Alzheimer's disease. And if you think about now combining computer brain interface technology with Bluetooth technology, people can potentially access the World Wide Web with their thoughts. If you, again you think this is science fiction, I would like for you to watch this short clip from a TED talk given by Jason Sosa, the founder and president of a company called Immersive. Chips won't just be in your laptop or in your phone. Doctors will implant them in our brains and they'll restore sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. Today, there are already 300,000 people with cochlear implants. It's a form of a neural prosthetic that allows certain types of deaf people to hear. 
And Michio Kaku describes brain implants as your very own augmented mind. And this is the beginning of the brain net, a possible successor to the internet, a form of virtual telepathy that will allow you to create music, drive a car, communicate with other people, and even surf the web at the speed of thought. Movies will no longer be these two-dimensional slate tablets that you look into and blast sound at you. They'll be fully immersive experiences, complete with feeling and emotion the way the director originally intended. Everything is stored, every memory recorded, and available on a cloud service. And mind uploading will allow your friends to share their digital vacation experiences that never actually took place. It all just happened in their mind. Similar to Total Recall. For people who espouse the transhumanist vision, these kind of advances make them believe that we are on the cusp of attaining the singularity. Now, this idea of transhumanism, though it's fueled by advances in neuroprosthetics and genetic engineering and things like that, is an idea that's a logical entailment of the thinking that emerged during the early days of the Enlightenment. In those days, science was being born, and people began to realize the power of science to understand the world around us and to convert that understanding into technology. And the vision was that this would make us the lords and masters of nature. Rene Descartes said this, we could know the power and action of fire, water, air, and the stars, the heavens and all other bodies in our environment as distinctly as we know the different crafts of our artisans. And we could use this knowledge as the artisans use theirs for all the purposes for which it is appropriate and thus make ourselves, as it were, the lords and masters of nature. Transhumanists are not looking to make themselves the lords and master of nature. They're looking to make themselves the lords and masters of human beings. This idea has spawned something that scholars call technofaith. The idea that science and technology is the pathway to improve not only the quality of human life, but to address the problem of evil, alleviating pain and suffering. That, that technofaith is a way for us to attain utopia and ultimately to attain immortality. That we, through science and technology, can bend the world and conform it to our desires. And this idea of techno-faith is becoming more and more prominent in our culture. In fact, it is beginning to infuse medicine itself, where medicine has undergone a transformation from being a human activity where we are trying to uh, alleviate people's pain and suffering through the medical arts, perhaps finding cures for certain diseases, to actually employing technology now to enhance human capabilities that medicine is merging with this transhumanist vision. In a sense, you could think of transhumanism as completing a materialistic worldview, making the materialistic worldview fully orbed, where the, the theory of human evolution supplants the Genesis 1 creation account for humanity, and now human destiny is supplanted scripturally with the book, from the book of Revelation with this transhumanist vision. This has become the materialistic eschatology. This has become the materialistic destiny for humanity. This represents a serious challenge to the gospel in the Christian worldview, does it not? 
But it's not just simply advances in computer brain interface technology that are raising uh, the possibilities of transhumanism. We are increasingly gaining control over the reproductive process. Recently, researchers developed an artificial womb that can be used to improve the outcome for premature births. And in fact, the technology will likely make it possible for premature infants to survive when born earlier than 20 weeks. On the other hand, you have scientists working in the lab to extend the survivability of, of embryos created through in vitro fertilization in a laboratory setting. And when these two technologies overlap, it's going to be conceivable that human beings will, and human reproduction will happen in a laboratory from conception through birth. We have advances in genetic engineering, the CRISPR-Cas9 advances, that potentially offer us the opportunity to treat a number of uh, debilitating genetic disorders, maybe even eliminate genetic disorders from the human gene pool, but at the same time, this could also be used for human enhancement technology. We have a stem cell technology that allows us to replace damaged tissues with stem cells, uh, restoring lost function to tissues that otherwise would not be able to regenerate, and yet the same technology can be used to extend human life expectancy and maybe enhance human capabilities. There are advances happening in pharmaceutical work where we're developing drugs that can enhance our cognition, enhance our memory, and even enhance our physical strength. And there's so many questions that begin to swirl as we think about these emerging technologies that are in service to this transhumanist vision. Questions that are ethical in nature, philosophical in nature, and theological in nature that can be summarized in a single question, should we play God? As Christians, we are going to have to engage this idea in the years to come. And we don't have the option of just simply condemning this technology because the technology can be used for enormous amount of good. We can't just simply attack it. Or we can't act like I've seen some Christians act as if this isn't going to really happen. Because it is happening. And so we can't withdraw from our culture. We've got to engage our culture with the Christian worldview, and with the gospel. And there are three ways that I think we can engage uh, this idea of transhumanism with the Christian worldview that actually helps to uh, advance the Christian worldview within our culture. One is to help address the ethical concerns associated with this emerging biotechnology. And I don't have time to get into the details this morning, uh, but suffice it to say that the Christian worldview is unique and actually providing the motivation to pursue biotechnology advances, while at the same time putting in place the appropriate safeguards that ensure that human beings are not exploited and human life isn't devalued. What I'd like to do in the time that I have remaining is focus on the next two points. And this has to do more closely with how we can present the gospel in a, in a, in a post-human world or a world where there's a vision towards post-humanism. And the first is that we have to demonstrate to people that techno-faith and transhumanism is a counterfeit gospel. And once we do that, we need to show what is the connection between the transhumanism dream and the hope that the gospel represents. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of work to show that techno-faith is a, a counterfeit gospel. All we have to do is read a little bit about the history 
of technology and the philosophy of technology, and we recognize right away that technology is never the panacea. It never solves problems. It only creates new problems where those problems didn't exist. Technology is a double-edged sword, and it might alleviate some pain and suffering. It might improve the quality of life for human beings in one area, but it almost always detracts from the quality of life in other areas. It almost always uh, leads to unintended consequences. The pain and suffering that technology addresses usually displaces it someplace else. Technology can be used for good, it can be used for bad, but the unintended consequences always undermine the impact that technology can have. Brent Waters says this with regard to the Industrial Revolution. The science which had promised to liberate humans from the shackles of superstition and fossilized tradition was instead serving as a cruel taskmaster. Philosopher David Curtis We create technologies to liberate us from the problems of physical labor. But these technologies inevitably create the unique problems of living in a technological society rife with pollution, psychological stress, and bureaucratic coldness. Each technology both giveth and taketh away. Despite our good intentions, all technologies manifest harmful side effects. And in spite of our bad intentions, even our most destructive inventions may be re-engineered for good. By adding to our lives, technologies by necessity also subtract from them. The more powerful a technology is, the more devastating the unintended consequences will be. And when we start talking about engineering humanity to create post-human species, we could very well create a dystopian future, uh, which none of us would want to live in. In fact, we might even drive ourselves to extinction. This is the concern of many thinkers as they think about this idea of post-humanism. But as Ronald Cold Turner says, technology can lead us to the erroneous notion that the only problems to which it is worth Paying attention involve engineering. When when we let this happen, we reduce human yearning for salvation to a mere desire for enhancement, a lesser salvation that we can control rather than the true salvation for for which we must also wait. Transhumanism and techno-faith are counterfeit gospel. But then how do we build a bridge between transhumanism and the Christian gospel. This is where I think we have an unprecedented opportunity to engage our culture, unlike any time in human history. I don't view transhumanism as a threat. I view it as an opportunity. Why would I say that? Because oftentimes I find skeptics will use scientific discoveries as an excuse to deny God's existence or deny the reliability of Scripture and in doing so, erect a wall that separates them from the gospel. What's happening with transhumanism is science and technology are decimating that wall and exposing the need that we all have as human beings for the hope that the gospel represents. Transhumanists are motivated ultimately by a desire to connect to the transcendent. They recognize that death is in a natural state. They want to see a utopia. They want to have meaning and purpose and destiny to their lives. And this is exactly what the the gospel offers us, that hope. 
Ronald Cole Turner says this, There are notable similarities between Christianity and transhumanism. Christians hope for eternal life that will be enjoyed with the fullest possible knowledge, joy, and moral purity. Transhumanists look forward to extending the human lifespan, perhaps indefinitely, while also enriching human knowledge, attaining greater happiness, if not joy, and achieving moral balance and social harmony. One explanation for these similarities is that transhumanism emerged from a culture shaped by Christianity. Another is that the yearning Christians and transhumanists feel if not quite universally shared by all human beings, are broadly held and find their own expression in both contexts. Transhumanism is an amazing opportunity for us to build a bridge to the gospel. And so we need to engage this idea. We need to be aware of this idea and know how to respond to it, not by condemning the technology, not by avoiding it, but by engaging it with the gospel. And I'm going to close with this one um, final thought, and that is this. That at the end of the day, Christianity is in fact transhumanism. <laughs> the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. The stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This is the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Kind of a vision of the future, right? It's a little daunting, but I like how Dr. Rana wraps it up there and that it's a possibility of building a bridge, that really the yearning, the longing that our culture has is for meaning, purpose, and destiny. And that's what we can offer them in Christianity. And I'm just gonna have to leave it there. I'm sure you have questions. Think of those questions, we'll talk about them next week. We have to get out of here because I just, got, I just found out they got a reset in here for a lunch. So I'm going to uh, next week, two weeks, yes, not Easter. Don't come next week. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your provision of people in the body of Christ who think about these questions and help the rest of us think about them, things that I normally wouldn't. I could probably spend my whole life not reflecting on these issues, but uh, there's my friend, Dr. Rana, to provoke my thinking and try, try to help me stay on mission with my oikos, that the things that are coming don't have to be scary. I just need to think about them as to how to use them to build a bridge to your eternal word and the eternal destiny that you have given us through your son, Jesus, in whose name we ask these things. Amen.